and welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm Annie Galvin, an editor and producer at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that is free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. And I'm Natalie Kirby, Digital Content Associate at Data and Society. Data and Society is a research institute that studies the social implications of data-centric technologies and automation. You can learn about our work at datasociety.net. This is the third season of our podcast, so if you're listening for the first time, I invite you to subscribe to Public Books 101 in your podcast feed and listen back to season one, which was about the internet, and season two, which was about the novel in the 21st century. This season, we're excited to partner with Data and Society to explore the past, present, and future of human life being quantified as data. Natalie will be your host this season, so I'll let her take it from here. And thanks for listening. In this season, Becoming Data, my guests and I are considering a few main guiding questions. How long has human life been quantified as data, and in what context? What are some major implications of humans being quantified or measured as data? How are people pushing back against the datification of human life, work, health, and citizenship, among other things. If you have thoughts about this episode, you can tweet at us at Data Society or at Public Books. You can follow both organizations on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about the work that we do. Today, my guests are Shaka McGlotten and Chris Ramsaru. We'll be discussing data in the context of labor. We address the historical ways that data has been used to organize labor, the labor of making ourselves visible to data-centric systems, and the different ways that people, and more specifically, workers, are resisting datafication. All right, let's dive into my conversation with Shaka and Chris. Thank you, Chris and Shaka, for being here with us today and chatting with us about data and labor. Um, So to start the episode, I'd like to ask if you could both say your name and tell our listeners a little bit about the work that you do. So Chris, let's start with you. So good morning, everybody. I'm, uh, my name is Chris Ramsroop. I'm an organizer with Justice for Migrant Workers. I am also enrolled at the PhD program at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, the University of Toronto in the Department of Social Justice. And I teach at the uh, University of Windsor in their faculty of law in the, as a migrant worker uh, clinic, as a clinic instructor, and in the, uh, at New College in the Department of Caribbean Studies uh, at University of Toronto as well, too. And uh, when I'm not busy, I like royalty. <laughs> Great. Shaka? Hi, my name is uh, Shaka McGlotton. I'm a professor of anthropology and media studies at Purchase College SUNY. And I do research um, on a variety of things, but they all the research I do tends to have um, something to do with art, media, technology, race, and sexuality. And I sometimes like to think of what I do as sort of staging encounters between scenes of media, art, and technology, and blackness and queerness. Great, thank you. So since this is a podcast series about data, I'd like to start with the question, what is data? And this may sound like a simple question, but I think a lot of people's answers will vary based on the type of work that they do. Um, And so I'd like to ground us in the understanding of data that both of you have. 
Um, so Shaka, I know that you've been working on a project called Black Data. Um, what does Black Data mean in the way that you're using it? And, and what are you exploring in this project? Sure. So I'll start with the definition of data, which I think will be helpful into leading into describing what Black Data is. So um, I really think of data as performative, right? So the strict definitions have to do with you know information. Um, but for me, I can think of it even as a genre, right? Or a set of principles for ordering the world. So again, as in language, I see data as something that brings worlds into being um, rather than just being a set of objective um, units of information. In terms of black data, it's an expansive project I've been working on since about 2013. Initially, I really thought about things like predictive policing and algorithmic violence. But as in so much of my research and creative practice, I want to deal with art and with artists who are responding to this kind of work. So increasingly, especially as there's been an explosion of work um, related to, you know, like Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression or Meredith Broussard's Artificial Unintelligent, Unintelligence, um, Ruha ben Benjamin's um, Race After Technology, I really have focused more on the creative aspects and thinking about artists, um, uh, Salome Asega, Mimi Onooha, um, Stephanie Dinkins, a lot of black and a lot of queer black artists who are finding different ways to reconceptualize um, living in a datafied society, right? Whether that has to do with algorithmic violence or artificial intelligence or how we imagine collective futures that um, in which people can use technologies without being overdetermined by them. Mm. All right. So, Chris, how about you? What is data to you? So first, I want to apologize to the uh, listeners in advance. Um, yeah, I didn't know. To be honest, I was like, I was stumped by both questions. So this morning, I uh, did a lifeline to one of my former students and a member of Justice for Migrant Workers. So just a little bit of context about us. Um, I've been organizing with farm workers in um, Ontario, Canada for approximately 20 years now. And um, the data question, I was like, well, really, what does that mean? So just a quote with Sarah Khan, which she mentioned, um, she says, I don't necessarily interact with an individual level, but it gives me a perspective on the extent of an issue. It shows a trend, pattern, long-term and short-term gain. It gives you the big picture. And that lifeline was so critical at that moment for me for many ways. It really kind of started making me think about this big picture about um, what I guess I do on a daily basis and what in our current context. So um, as we try to survive in this, this bloody pandemic, um, data is, is critical, both as an act of uh, oppression, but also as an act of resistance. Uh, the oppression comes from, um, with respect to say workplace COVID outbreaks, how racialized people are managed during the pandemic, how uh, with respect to technology, how it's being used to, to suppress racialized bodies and particularly agricultural workers who are guest workers in rural Ontario, where, which nobody really gives a second thought about, uh, especially in urban metropoles across, across the world. So on one side's data for me is about that domination project. But on the other side, I think, and, and, and re referring to what Shaka said too, it's about how are people, um, and where Shaka's looking at the artistic uh, forms of representation, and, and if, if I may say resistance as well too, to, to data and the control of data, 
I think for myself, you know, what do we learn from the workers and how they are resisting how data is controlling their lives? And, and what steps do we do to try to disrupt data and it's, I guess, all-encompassing control on, our, on who we are as a society? Yeah, I, I really love that answer for a few different reasons. I think data is a word that's thrown around all the time right now. But if someone asked me to say what data was, I think I would I would definitely struggle for a minute to be like, OK, it, you know, it is like information, but it's so many more things right now in our world. Right. And I think that's going to come out throughout this episode. And so our next question is it's kind of a maybe a fun one about how you see data show up in your own life, just to kind of get some concrete examples on the table. You know, we're interacting with it every day in our lives without often even realizing it. So, Chris, what's kind of one major way that you see yourself interacting with data on a day-to-day basis? I guess my constant use of the phone. Um, I'm always on WhatsApp, particularly. I know we should be, you know, turning over to Signal or more, but uh, I use WhatsApp almost every minute of the day. Uh, Thank goodness for this podcast because I'm not on it right now. Um, You know, checking that, looking at other social media uh, to see what's going on around um, any issues or irrelevant uh, current events that's going on. Uh, that's pretty much, I guess, the main thing for me is, is my my phone. Yeah, I mean, I definitely was like, oh, I'm glad we're putting our phones on airplane mode right now. And I was like, I have to close all my tabs that might notify me because I know I will look at them. So I, I hear you. How about you, Shaka? I mean, in terms of interacting with data on a day-to-day basis, I almost said day-to-date. Data, 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 data. <laughs> Tongue twister. Well, I can't really, <laughs> I can't really think of one way that it isn't right. So you know, I can make oatmeal without looking up how to do it, but not a lot of other things. You know, I listen to NPR via a smart speaker, which is really listening all the time. Um, you know, I support NPR, and they know it, and they are probably sharing parts of that information with others. You know, the the scholar John Cheney Lippold says he has a book called We Are Data, and I tend to agree. Right, the lines between this sort of abstract set of you know operations, computational or not, and who we are has completely you know blurred. I very rarely use social media anymore. You know, I've got not safe for work Twitter, and you know, every once in a while I go on and off, but um, but it doesn't really it doesn't really matter that I don't use that. Right, so you know, you have shadow profiles. You know, I can still be advertised things based on what my partner. Um, looks at, you know, I'm like, why am I getting Hermes scarves like in my, <laughs> in my, in my recommendation? But again, I think, um, I'm really interested in this idea of, you know, thinking about data as a genre for ordering the world. Um, so, and we think about computational data and the collection of it, you know, um, in this very contemporary context, but data goes way back before computation in the sort of in the digital era. So, you know, in thinking about the accountings of capital or debt, um, data has always been tied to state power. And I was like doing a little research for this, um, and I was talking with a, a colleague and a friend who reminded me that even terms like statistics are quite old. These are these come from Roman antiquity, right? And it, um, the the term really comes from council of state. It come, it's tied to words like politician. And the original purpose of the statistic, right, was to produce data that was going to be used by governmental administrative bodies, right? So we have that now, um, you know, in the census. And the census likely 
derives from Roman antiquity. It was used to, um, you had someone called the censor, which is interesting in, in itself, who took the censuses, censuses and oversaw things like public manners and morals. And so that idea of censor actually is to appraise value and to judge. Yeah, but these histories, right, of data as always tied to state power, I think is very, these are very important histories. I like that you brought up value, right? Because I think that is a way that data particularly gets connected with labor, you know, how we value ourselves, the value of our labor, the exchange of capital. Um, And then also the census is such a great example, especially since we just went through the 2020 census. So hopefully that's (laughs) a way that a lot of people can kind of imagine, right? This quantification system. So my next question is about labor, since I feel like we've really got a good grounding now of what data is and how you're both thinking about data. And I think labor, you know, can refer to so many different things. So I'm really curious to hear how you both understand that term. So Chris, maybe um, you could go first since your work kind of fits more into traditional concepts of what labor is. When you talk about labor in your work, what are you describing? Who are the laborers and what work are they performing? So to give both, I guess, a personal background, but also kind of the kind of historical work that um, has been happening here in Ontario. So my family came to the Caribbean as indentured workers after the end of slavery in the 1850s or 1860s, I believe. Uh, So in the post, um, I guess, abolition uh, period throughout the British Empire, uh, the plantation class had to find ways to ensure their profits would continue and to basically ensure that sugar and other cash crops could continue its uh, international domination. So you looked for so-called, uh, some people would say cheap labor, but we would say unfree labor. And uh, that's how many um, Indian, Chinese, uh, people from the African continent, uh, Portuguese communities ended up in, in the Caribbean and as other places as indentured laborers. Uh, indentured labor... Uh, where people were fixed to a contract anywhere from two to five years. And after that period of time, they could um, so-called buy their freedom or return home. In many cases, people were indebted um, afterwards. And these contracts are very carceral. Uh, In what I mean by that, uh, the carcerality comes from where if you did try to so-called escape the plantation, you would be whipped. Uh, You would be put in a jail. So the, the full effect and the full enforcement of the, the colonial state would be used to, to, to imprison and to punish you for so-called the act of freedom. Simultaneously, when we think about migration, we usually think about it as a one-way avenue, right? We think about uh, south to north, particularly. Um, one of the things that we always have to remember about uh, the indentured period Uh, The British Empire was always an empire that was contested, and it was uh, a place of genocide and imperiousness, where uh, crisis, famine, you know, the failure of British agricultural policies led to the death of millions of people. And these are the reasons why people migrated to other parts of the world. And why I wanted to set that foundation up is because I look at a direct connection from British imperial policies from several centuries ago through both the legacy of slavery and the colonial system to how migrant workers arrive in Canada. The contract I mentioned a little while ago, um, where migrant farm workers have been coming up to Canada since 1966, is very similar. People come for a fixed contract. If you do try to so-called run away, that uh, you'd be imprisoned 
and you'd basically be disbarred. You're tied to an employer and you've got no form of labor and social mobility in Canada. So is this through this so-called peculiar institution that I started to organize with migrant farm workers 20 years ago? Thinking about family roots, trying to understand the ge geography of, of um, rural Ontario, and, and just thinking about the history of race and labor. The challenge about race and labor is that when we uh, look at a class analysis, there's always a, a shortness and a challenge where, where uh, class conscious comrades to basically belittle or devalue race. And simultaneously, when we're talking about race, is trying to ensure that the perspective of racialized class, racializing class, working class communities are undertaken and understood. Now, why I also wanted to talk about the plantation economy is that technology has been fundamental for the advancement of the industry for the last several hundred years. So it's in no way a coincidence that we're seeing the uh, prevailing changes, the changes in automation, artificial intelligence, and technology. Um, with the expansion of an agricultural industry, both in the Canada and the United States, we are basically in tandem, um, not just simply about the production of food, but also about empire. So both Canada and the United States are trying to expand um, our agricultural dominance of the global south. And the guest worker programs, unfree labor, whether it's undocumented or guest workers, and the role of data and technology is used to, to, to maximize profits uh, for the purpose of domination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important to highlight. And as you said, often gets lost in labor debates because they become so much about class and socioeconomic status. Shaka, how about you? And I'd also be curious, so I think Chris really brought up, right, this legacy of colonization and going back to like plantations and how this technology has kind of carried through um, throughout this history. And so I'd like to for you to both talk about um, how you think about labor. But then I know in your Black Data work, you often reference the fact that a lot of the technologies that are around today um, are rooted in the transatlantic uh, slave trade. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that history as well. Sure. Um, I was recently rereading one of the kind of foundational texts of Black Studies and Black Feminist Studies um, by Horton Spillers. It's Mama's Baby, Papa's May Maybe, an American grammar book. And it's an extraordinarily rich you know, piece. And I was reading it sort of with my Black Data Project in mind. And one of the things that she talks about there is you know, just being very clear about the processes of dehumanization that occurred by turning people into, uh, into commodities where you become a value and in that way are no longer a person. And there's, of course, the prior um, moment, I think, of colonization. I mean, a colonization and, and the slave trade are, of course, completely you know, intertwined, but sort of reading about the ways that the notions of discovery, discovering the new world, really, I think of it as now through, um, through spillers as this really interesting process by which colonizers were sought, were seduced by the availability of these people who then have to not become people in order so you can civilize them which will take up, which is a process that requires, of course, that you take them and you take their stuff. So there's a really twisted and sick logic, right? Kind of at root where you could almost say you're asking for it. You are asking for it by being barbarians, right? And now we're civilizing you 
um, by increasing our own wealth through you and not just your labor or your resources, but, you know, in order to set a system into work that, you know, takes us up to this present moment. In other words, you know, you think about something like a private prison. It's a plantation, right? Or, you know, it generates revenue. So in terms of the relationship to slavery, right, you have ways in which people are just turned into numbers on a ledger. In these really famous archival documents, you have, you know, the the sort of plans for the slave holds on the on the on the ships, and they would calculate, okay, well, a man needs one and a half foot by six feet. That's a coffin, right? And a woman needs less, and a child needs less, right? So, Catherine McKittrick also has this very interesting um, phrase in a in an essay of the same title called uh, Mathematics of Unliving, right? So these are the breathless lists, the ship registries, the ways in which um, slavers would sometimes throw slaves overboard in order to collect insurance monies because it might have been, you know, more valuable to do that than to um, actually sell slaves. So, you know, I think these are some of the ways that this this moves through. And you think about a census, you think about the ways that data have been used to mark blackness as deviant or to mark blackness as separate from redlining was a data driven process. It's not as if we don't have data, right? It's who has it and how is it being operationalized? If I could just follow up, I said a few really beautiful things there that, you know, this myth of, you know, people coming from the global south um, and and with, I guess, my organizing with temporary foreign workers or guest workers or migrant workers, the same notion, the same idea of a civilizing mission that they're coming up to the global north, we are, quote unquote, saving them from poverty, (laughs) from abject, um, a society that has failed. Right. right? And, And this idea that that the only way that their salvation can be met is by coming to work on dehumanized, dirty, and deadly jobs in the global north. Mm-hmm. Um, so that idea, I think it's, it's still prevalent. And it's that continuation, that extension about how bodies are commodified, which is a beautiful, beautiful way for how you put it. You come to work crappy jobs. You don't have the right to, uh, to, to labor protections or democratic participations or other forms of exclusion, which kind of further entrench this, uh, this, this uh, subordination. Or exploitation in our in our in the global north. So the example that I like to use in um, Southwest Ontario, um, and for for the listeners, if you don't know much about Ontario, um, the area that I organize with is just outside of Detroit, and the mythology is that farmers put food on the tables of Canadians of Americans, and in Canada, that mythology is extremely powerful. And why I want to focus on that for a second is that one of the things that we can't forget that these are profit commodities, right? They exchange, they shift. So on one day, uh, there are millions of acres that's being used for, for tomatoes. They know that cannabis now is a more profitable industry. So they've all just switched over to cannabis productions. So what happens to all those bodies, those migrant workers who used to work on tomatoes? They're no longer needed. They bring in a new crop of people. And therefore, we've just basically displaced and displanted entire communities. Just the other thing, too, um, Carrie Prabish and Lee Brinford had um, undertaken some work. And then when back in the day, we had also identified a very similar pattern 
We saw workers from the Caribbean who are predominantly Black working in crops such as tobacco and apples. Uh, Latinx workers would be working in the greenhouse industries. So as uh, industries changed, uh, as tobacco, for instance, went under, uh, those workers who spent many years tied to the land, tied to the crop, they no longer had a career. They had no opportunities for work at all. Those bodies became discarded. I think that's really interesting in that it almost, again, shows the dehumanization, right? Because these are no longer people who need livelihoods, but they're directly related to whatever labor they can produce, whatever crop they can um, work on. So I want to bring us uh, into the next section um, to think about some like really, which I think you guys have already brought up some really specific examples, but just how is technology and data reconfiguring labor? Um, so Shaka, in your work, you focus on sexuality and pornography. And so I want you to talk a little bit about OnlyFans, which is a content subscription service, and and how in the pandemic we've seen, like through OnlyFans and through other means, more sex work move online, right, because of safety. And I'm curious, has this changed sex work then, or has it kind of stayed the same? And what are the consequences of this work that's kind of been traditionally marginalized and in the shadows existing online where it can be more easily tracked and more datafied? So OnlyFans is a subscription-based service where creators can post their own content and users can subscribe to the content. Um, sometimes that makes the, all the content available. Sometimes you require, um, you may be required to to spend extra money in order to unlock different kinds of contact uh, um, content, and it, although different kinds of people use OnlyFans, you know, musicians and you know, comedians and other people, it is primarily known for um, its sexual content. But in terms of OnlyFans and sex work more broadly, we all know that sex work is never going to go anywhere, ever, 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 ever. It will always exist and. Frankly, I think that it should exist. In terms of um, OnlyFans right now, this is a gig economy, right? So, and like all gig economies, the labor, the kind of rules around labor, the fairness of labor practices, they these things don't really exist, right? So the, the case of Bella Thorne, an actor who came in and, you know, sort of promised certain kinds of images and she's relatively well known and she made a million dollars in a week, this led to changes in OnlyFans, um, how they allowed producers, creators to monetize their material, whether it was the amount in terms of getting tips, the cost for subscriptions. One part is interesting is like OnlyFans is just part of a larger sort of sex work ecosystem, right? So prior to COVID, you might have performers who would perform in, you know, videos for mainstream pornographic production companies who are also escorts. Like that's been happening forever. Um, and then you might have people who created their own sites. And then, of course, you have something like OnlyFans and comparable sites where people were able to, you know, kind of find a platform that then they could supplement. The truth is, and I think the New York Times reported on this not that long, long ago, is that it's very hit and miss, right? Mm. You could get on there and make ton, like four or $5,000 a month, and I could get on there and make, you know, 200. There's an unevenness that has always been there, I think, in digital sex work, right? Who takes off and who doesn't? Do you think that that wasn't, that wasn't present kind of in the non-digital world of sex work? 
you know, prior moments of sex work were tied to, um, yeah, I'm going to leave aside like street work, which is its own kind of thing. But if you thought about like massage parlors or escort services or, um, you know, in gay male culture, there were specific bars that were known as like hustler bars, but, and there were networks, right? And I think that one thing maybe that is interesting is that given the digital context, um, creators, uh, for only fan, you know, in only fans or on this platform and, and others like them, they can network with each other, right? So there can be, you know, um, I think like, even though there's a sort of very decentralized quality, I think even something like with farm workers, once you start talking to each other, then you have the means to mobilize and to at least draw attention to what, uh, to what may be happening. But I would say to listeners, you know, don't count on making, don't actually count on making money doing it, right? <laughs> it's an extraordinary effort, right? You know, if you see the people who are actually quite adept at it, it looks like the kind of pornography they're producing in other contexts, right? They have, they have a boom mic, they have lighting, they have, even if it's filmed in a very kind of natural way, these are professional productions. And for anyone who's tried to, you know, for all of you who've tried to take a good selfie or who've tried to make a TikTok, it's a lot harder than it looks. That reminds me of, and, and I was going to ask you about this in your article on streaking, right? You talk about working with your, like getting trained by your partner and how to like do the yeah. right angles and get the right yeah. lighting. And, and I thought that was like such an interesting way to think about how we labor with these technologies is to make ourselves visible to them and legible and read well to others. Yeah, very well put. There are um, best practices. You could look them up and be like, how do I take a good picture of my butt? And to master those, you know, I think about, you know, the people who are younger than me and probably younger than you and probably younger than most of the listeners on this show. <laughs> who, you know, you call them digital natives and they can take an amazing selfie. They know how to do that, but they don't always understand like the underlying processes that are going on. And I don't just mean sort of social processes, which they're very sophisticated, very politically woke, but I mean the kind of underlying like data processes, right? You know, if, you know, whether it was, it's Facebook with, you know, facial recognition or it's the ability of, you know, for people, you know, for TikTok and other platforms to detect nudity, though a lot of humans still actually have to do that work. Surprising number. Definitely. So, Chris, I want to I want to talk to you now about the the farm workers that you're working with. And so I know that you had told us previously about how um, these greenhouses are being outfitted with new tech tools, new automated tools. Um, so I'd love for you to tell us about that and kind of what the workers' experiences are interacting with these automated systems. And I, I also want to ask you, we're kind of talking about these historical agricultural tools as well that where technology was used. So if you have an example of kind of a historical one and then, and then one that we're seeing in the present day. So the way that we do our work is um, we're all volunteer collective. And, you know, both my academic work, which is based on, on um, the organizing, it's premised on basically building trust, building long-term relationships, uh, being straight up honest with peeps, dealing with a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, a lot of sadness, a lot of happiness, and a lot of joy. And um, on a Friday night, I usually would go out to these communities in the middle of nowhere, Ontario, uh, set up shop, start talking to peeps. And it's through this kind of outreach that, you know, this our, we strengthen our analysis and understand other vectors 
or the intersections where racialized labor come into being and criminalization, racial profiling. So a bunch of the brothers um, in a place called uh, Tilsonburg, Ontario, and uh, these are mostly Trinidadian workers at that time that I was talking to, had told me something like, yo, the cops had come to my uh, farm and they had um, basically uh, said that we wanted our DNA, right? And one of the brothers pulled me aside on a Friday night and we talked for a little bit. And then I started talking to other people. They started pulling me aside too. And I'm like, whoa, what, so what's going on? So we realized that uh, there was a DNA sweep where basically they took every black and brown worker, every um, worker from Trinidad, Jamaica, and uh, Dominica had uh, coerced them into giving uh, their, their DNA. Um, it was in, in, in relationship to a, um, a sexual assault that happened in the community. They had a description of who they were looking for. But who decided to, to take the DNA and coerce this DNA from, they didn't fit the description. They took every Indo and Afro-Caribbean worker, uh, brothers that were five foot one to six foot five, literally 102 pounds to 360 pounds. And, um, you know, they, they basically corralled everybody in the back of a car. Then they took them to a van. Uh, their employers were complicit in this. Uh, they kept harassing the workers um, over and over again, day and night, to try to show that they somehow were, were criminalized or were, were somehow involved in, in this act that they were looking for. Uh, the employer put pressure on these workers. The employers put pressure on these workers that they've had to comply with this. Uh, one worker who refused to take part was, uh, you know, could not come back to work on the program, even though that this uh, gentleman was was innocent. And, um, you know, which should be no surprise to our listeners, and I know it's no surprise to any of us, the police lied to the workers, that they said that, yeah, the, their DNA would be, um, uh, their, the swab would be destroyed. But as, you know, we started to organize, put pressure on the government, engage in different forms of uh, body, government body um, investigations, a couple of things we realized that um, in these type of DNA sweeps, because of the nature of these, these, these crimes, uh, irrespective of if you're innocent, you have nothing to do with it, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, their DNA are kept forever in a registry. So um, we have, I guess, you know, besides the organizing, uh, we've also been engaging in um, a class action and a human rights case about this form of racial control, uh, racial profiling. And that was really kind of the foray into start thinking about other forms of levels of contain and control. So just like one of these talks on a Friday night, um, you know, I, in the, my data and society piece, I introduced peeps to um, three people, uh, Lion, Sandra and Miguel, all longtime organizers in another community. And very much the same thing that all three of them started telling me stories about robotics and, and how, you know, agriculture are industrial operations. And the way that the, the narrative is that all of these um, advances in technologies are supposed to make the employer's life uh, good. It's supposed to help profit, maximize profit. It's supposed to make um, the seamless production of, 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 of crop production and for cash crops. But what's always missed in this is what are the implications on racialized workers? Now, getting back to what Lion, um, Sandra, and Miguel told me. So Lion was like, look, we would work faster than the robots. And in many cases, when the robots broke down on the farms, uh, we would lose work. Or that we were put in competition with the robots, right? That was one thing. Lion also talked about stopwatches and how stopwatches were used to basically, uh, you know, surveil the workers and to identify how much crop production each worker was involved with. 
Uh, Sandra was talking about uh, the use of biometrics, whether it's fingerprints or others, and trying to ask, you know, where is this data going? Who's collecting this data? What companies are involved in, in, you know, in the cannabis industries? Who is this being sold to? And how are bodies constructed, right? So how are, say, Latinx bodies, Black bodies, construction in re- constructed in relationship to data collection? How do we construct the ideal worker? Um, and, 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 and in relationship to how many crops they can pick. And um, Miguel talks about wage theft, right? And how the, the systems that are used for so-called time theft to check how much, um, what time do people start work um, and try to kind of uh, think about when the piece rate, the piece rate system, which is a way that people are, how much crops they pick. So Miguel was, uh, and his workers, comrades, were like, look, we notice they talk about time theft, but we're seeing is wage theft. And we're seeing that our wages are being stolen by a computer system that doesn't necessarily understand or take in consideration the work that we are putting into uh, picking and harvesting crops. So for myself, I thought that was an extremely eye-opening moment. There's always been this idea of technology as a salvation. Uh, lots of money are invested Government money is invested in technology innovation. Majority of times it fails. So for myself, it's about, okay, it's not just thinking about innovations in technology and automation. It gets back to the age-old questions. Why are agricultural workers exempt from minimum wage laws? Why can, do agricultural workers cannot form unions? Why do we insist in a system where uh, instead of ensuring when people are hurt and sick, uh, rather than getting proper and decent health care, they're basically deported back to their home countries where we're downloading our responsibilities in the global north to, north to them. Um, a few days ago, I had saw on this program, on a Canadian television program, but Canada is always seen as this beautiful welfare state. And they were trying to position and say, <laughs> with the changes in automation and technology, Canada is going to be okay. Because just like Sweden and Denmark and, 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 and Iceland, where they have a, a very wonderful welfare state, when people lose their jobs as a result of technological changes, the welfare state, our social safety net, are going to shield and protect them. But from the experiences both for Canada and the United States, we know that is not true because the people who pick our crops, the people who are in service uh, service industries do not get access to the social safety net. Thank you. So you both kind of just spoke about um, different types of workers and the way that we kind of labor with these technologies and I'm curious if in listening to each other, you found any kind of similarities or differences in the way that these two types of workers experience um, technology. Well, we had a really nice conversation, um, Chris and I, last night. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of points of overlap. I think the question of automation and also to sort of understand the ways that these processes of dehumanization and I read a really interesting term, I think it comes from like Franz Fanon, the condemned, right? The people mm-hmm. who, whether we're talking about actual prisons or not, who are who are prisoned, you know, by certain structural functions, whether it's the exclusion from a welfare state, the, you know, the inability to unionize, which is one obvious, I think, um, point, say, between sex workers and migrant farm laborers, and the reduction of people to thingness, Right. Earlier, Natalie, you were talking about the ways that I think the farm workers and the robots and the land form, you know, an integrated circuit. Right. And there are failures at every level. However, the only ones who are punished for the failures, as Chris pointed out, are the laborers. 
right? And and so I think that the the sort of thingification, you know, the plantation logics of of, in, of indentured servitude or of slavery or of migrant farm workers, and we can't make them obviously equivalent, but there is similar um, kind of formal attributes where people aren't people anymore. They're part of a system that depends on them, but they are the only ones who are going to be punished in human ways. Right? To go back to this question of time theft versus wage theft, I, I, when I was, I think I t- said this to you last night, Chris. Right? The you know the employers are worried about time theft. And the the employees are worried about wage theft, but the employees are also having their time stolen because they're indentured. They exist in a state of indebtedness from which they can never escape. And for all of us who are work, living on credit, right, there's a different form of that. But in these cases, it's it's the theft of a livable present and a flourishing future. Cool. That was, was beautiful. Um, and yeah, I think it really kind of captures the conversation that we had so there's, there's, I guess, multiple forms of debt, right? This continued notion idea of, of you know, precarious communities, um, which always feel in debt, this gratefulness for shitty jobs, or this uh, continuous um, indebtedness that the, the global south, uh, that forces people from the global south because of unfair trade agreements, uh, and a, co- a continual collective debt to the north as a result of these unequal economic mm-hmm. uh, and, and colonial relationships so it's a continued indebtedness that that creates this bond and relationship, which which really does force people to return year after year. It's not that people have a free choice. Um, one of the things that happened during COVID was that um, a lot of the workers from the Caribbean had to sign these waivers that if anything happened in the north, in the global north, such as COVID, if they got it, uh, their governments would be not responsible. And you know, people kept chastising the workers. It was your bloody free choice to come up to Canada. And no, this unequal relationship, this debt relationship that I, that I think that um, we're both uh, we're both getting to here, right? That that forces people to migrate. The other component to think just historically between um, um, sex workers and migrant workers, and yes, there's always it's interchangeable. Many migrant workers engage in sex work, and sex workers engage in agriculture work. It's historically always has happened, but the way that the state and say bourgeoisie bodies patrol. And think about the only way to support is through this um, idea of saving, saving the oppressed other, rather than building consciousness um, for, for liberation. And not just empowerment, but basically transformation to accept that people are, aren't going to engage in sex work or they're going to engage in, in agricultural work on their own terms, not to be formed or to put into conditions that they don't want to face. So I see that that as another commonality. And the way that the state responds to liberation through multiple forms of suppression, through both legal instruments and police instruments, it is very, very similar. And Shaka, correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be, you know, but I guess with your digital work, looking at digital sex workers, you know, there's, there is a connection about how both bodies are commodified. But I think both of us are trying to also think about libertary modes, right, or ways that people are trying to defy. And tell me if I'm off the field. No, that's, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, I think that people find ways to navigate, to be resilient, um, to go back to this, you know, part of this too, of the, you know, you're asking for it, you know, there is this sort of, if you weren't so poor, you wouldn't be so poor. If you weren't so in debt, you wouldn't be so in debt. And so we're saving you, but we're not saving you by offering you the chance to get out of a debt you'll never get out of. Someone told me the other day, I was feeling very 
down from the caucasity, which is what I call white supremacy these days. And, you know, he just sort of reminded me, he's like, don't get gaslit. One of the tricks of the caucasity is to tell you that you're losing, to convince you that you're losing when we're winning. And if the state didn't have to work so hard to mobilize against Black Lives Matter, Margaret, migrant farm workers, um, sex workers, and so on, you know, if the state wasn't doing that, then it means that they would be winning. But the fact that they have to do it means that they're losing. Uh, I think about all the work of, um, like within sort of my, you know, sphere of research, you know, all of these black and brown folk who are um, writing books, holding symposia, you know, someone like Timnit Gebru, who was fired from Google after they hired her to be on their AI ethics board. This kind of work is is changing. The work that's done at Data and Society, AI Now, this is putting pressure to bear. I think that the sad thing is like in these forms of marginalized labor that have been so historically marginalized, the, you know, it's the people who are the most vulnerable. And so the question is, how do we pay attention to and elevate the forms of resistance that they're engaging in and provide whatever kinds of, you know, support some of us can provide? You know, I, I provide very different kinds of support around these issues, I think, Chris, than you. But, you know, I think that these are some of the questions that we have to think about going forward. Yeah, I love that this conversation is has naturally moved into resistance and refusal because that was definitely what I wanted to talk about next. So Chris, can you tell us like what you've seen so far as to how farm workers are kind of refusing or resisting these technologies? So just want to follow up on, on what Shaka was just mentioning about winning, right? And why the mm-hmm. state is always uh, trying to shut down resistance movements. The resistance with whiteness, with white supremacy, with capitalism, there's always it's always contested. It's never cemented just you know one way suppression. People are always trying to fight back, and part of my role is to to basically to 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 um, echo and provide a support and solidarity network to to those people who are fighting. And what we're seeing is these different methods and different ways that people are are trying to talk back to technology, trying to talk back to oppressive work conditions. So lie on. So, you know, getting back to the article I did for, for Data and Society and um, just a little background on Lion. Lion um, came to Canada a couple of years ago in the farm program. He suffered a, a near-death experience where he almost died as a worker. And um, they were trying to ship him back home, repatriate him while he's still sick. And he's been here and he's been resilient and trying to fight back in Canada to not only demand health care, but justice for his comrades. And when you meet this dude, you know, he's always kind of smiley and, you know, he kind of always hides his... Um, his, his sickness, but he's extremely astute. And he goes into a greenhouse and he kind of observes what's going on. And in his particular ability, him and his workers, when they were told to wear these, these stopwatches, he's like, no, we're not going to do it, right? They kept trying to force and coerce him and threaten him. He's like, we're not going to do this. We're not going to have you. We're not going to let you control us, right? And then even with, with uh, robots and automation, they find ways to manipulate it um, and, and try to think about ways that they're going around uh, to try to suppress the way that automation and technology is used to control their labor. Now, the other component during the COVID, what, which we've, we've seen, is that um, workers have been engaging in under like wildcat strikes. Uh, what's new during COVID is, and, and once again, you know, the most precarious 
most people who have the most to lose find ways to fight back. And, and a lot of times they put everything on the table. So whether it's engaging in work refusals, whether it's using WhatsApp or Signal or Messenger to document the conditions and then sharing it, uh, which then becomes part of this collective memory where people are sharing, look, my housing is bad, but I also could relate because another worker in another town somewhere else has the same conditions. And we've been able to share our experiences uh, through <clears throat> technology that wasn't meant to be used that way. In a lot of farms across Canada, uh, they're on lockdown where workers are not allowed to leave their farms ever, right? They're basically told that they have to stay on, on their property under perpetual curfews. So, you know, we have to find different ways to organize with the workers and try to bring different people from different places together. So, um, you know, in the process right now of taking workers who've engaged in different forms of acts of resistance, trying to get them to see their commonalities. Sometimes people in the Caribbean don't necessarily agree or come to agreement with each other. Trying to see Trinidadians, Jamaicans, workers from Barbados, Montserrat, trying to get them to understand that there's commonalities and resistance. And then thinking about Mexican and Guatemalan workers and Thai workers and Filipino workers and trying to show how they use the same tools to fight back. So it's an extremely promising period. It is depressing. It is tough. There's a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow once again. But I think as somebody who tries to do organizing, it's about the hope and the sacrifices. The, amount, the fact that people are trying to fight back, um, I don't think we have a choice but to support them. Definitely. Now, Shaka, in your work, you talk about refusal and you specifically use the metaphor of the black box, um, right? So traditionally, the black box, as, as you kind of say in the paper, is a system in which one can only see the inputs and outputs, but not the contents, not like how that output is created. Um, and so you use this, you employ it as a tool for people to become dark and to like refuse technological systems. And so I'd be really curious if you could talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much refusing all technological systems, you know, I'm really inspired by the work of Edward Glissant, which is, you know, partly about the ways that within Western humanism, there is a demand to um, be transparent. But I think that, you know, what Glissant puts under pressure is that um, people have a right to be opaque, right? So the black box metaphor is actually kind of working two ways. One is that it's a critique of the ways technical systems are made opaque, where we don't know what's actually going on inside, which is the case with a lot of, you know, basically any company that's using an algorithm is being contracted by a state agency to use algorithms to whatever, produce data, make make decisions, we don't know what's going on in them, right? So you have a lot of uh, algorithmic accountability efforts that are going on now that I think are really, really important. But the flip side of it too is, yeah, like what would it mean to go dark, right? And I don't mean sort of like a Luddite, you know, you're just going to go live in the woods and I don't know, do whatever, like scroll the tree bark. Um, but it it is a sort of question about what is this demand to be transparent? So I think like the European data privacy law is a very interesting one, as is the the right to be forgotten, right? That this idea that some of what makes us us, including all the data that we produce, that rather than that being extracted and value being produced from it, that we should have some kind of say, right? So there is this way in which it becomes impossible for a lot of people to step outside of these systems, right? And in, um, in countries where Facebook says, you know, we'll offer the internet free, except you can only access the internet through Facebook, right? 
you don't really, then what's your choice, you know, setting up a mesh network or, or just being wealthy enough to afford different, a different way of connecting. So to go back to the black box, right, it, there's this, these two meanings, right? There's the, there's the, on the one hand, the sense that we need algorithmic accountability. We need to see inside the box when it impacts people, we need to be able to see it when it's about dis- distributing state resources. We need to see what's going on there because it has been demonstrated over and over and over and over again that data are not neutral, that algorithms are not neutral, and certainly their outputs are not neutral. You know, um, California has enacted um, better data privacy laws, but what's the problem here? Why can't we do that, right? Why can't we have a greater have greater control that we are producing value? Are we getting paid? No, I'm just rabbit holing all the time. I'm just waiting for that breaking up big tech. I'm waiting for that, you know, demand that any algorithmic processes that impact, you know, people, citizens and non-citizens should be um, auditable so that we know what's what's really going on. So like transparency for the state, (laughs) opacity for everyone else. Right. At least as a as a potential right. Yeah. And I think that's a really beautiful segue into kind of the last question here, which is very forward looking and and where do we go next? You know, I think as this conversation has shown, often when we talk about data and technological systems, things can feel very pessimistic or dystopian. But then here we have, you know, people resisting and and fighting back and and finding new ways of repurposing technology for activism. And so I think, Chris, let's start with you. I know that in previous conversations, you've really highlighted how important you think a worker-led movement is. And and I'd be really curious to hear from you, like, how do we ensure that happens? How do we, you know, support a worker-led movement in fighting back? So I think the the first thing, so I said a shout out to both Data Society and Food Chain Workers Alliance. Um, so part of, I guess, the work that I got to do with the rest of my peeps is uh, to be, continue this project uh, to look at the way and the impact that um, that technology has changed, right? So working with workers once again um, to start, you know, collecting, conducting some workshops and the ideas there. That's my immediate next steps. Um, second of all is to document the other forms of resistance and sharing those, right, with, with, with other communities. And I think it's also too, it's definitely how do we, you know, a multi, multi, multiple ways of the regulation and the oversight uh, to ensure that, you know, people's privacy is respected, but working towards the fact that people could collectively organize together. That, you know, for us in Canada, our other demand is around permanent status. So anybody who's undocumented or every, anybody who comes up with a guest worker, anybody with precarious immigration status should uh, be given permanent status on arrival. So it's about reforms to our immigration laws, our labor laws, and to think about, you know, right now data is being imposed, um, technology is being imposed onto workers with negative consequences. How do we actually turn that around? How do we ensure that any data that's being taken, that does happen, or any technological changes are done in the interest of workers, where the workers are primary decision makers, not the bosses? So I think it's about trying to see um, how to shift that balance of power Learn from the different wildcat strikes, the different ways that people are mobilizing, the different ways that people are coming together, and to try to amplify what's happening now uh, to keep building. Now, I've been at this a very long time, and we have only made scratch the very, 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 very small surface. And I look at the work that we're doing. 
um, as part of a longer legacy, right? So if you're thinking about indentureship, if you're thinking about early agricultural organizers who are fighting back, we're only a blimp on this larger timeline. So it's learning about the past and how the different ways that other people have fought back. So now, you know, as I get older, how do we start ensuring that other people continue what to work on? Because we know the other side is doing that. You know, they've had a long-term vision about where they want to see um, the plantation economy, where they wanted to see capitalism, and what they wanted to value and commodify food. So for us, it's about having that long-term vision of what we want as a society, where food is not a commodity, where food is a right, uh, where people's dignity is a right, and where we don't go every day to exploit ourselves, and we don't put ourselves in the positions where we die to make a basic living. Yeah, thank you. Shaka, over to you. I mean, I echo everything Chris said across a variety of contexts, right? These are basic, you know, human needs and dignities that should be afforded everyone. And that in the end costs less or even produces, even within a capitalist system, more. But again, I think it's important to emphasize, as Chris did, you know, all of the ways in which people are fighting, you know, within the context of my own research, especially around, say, like, um, you know, black data, this is this is echoed in other uh, in the work of other scholars as well, which is one like number one, does X need to be built? Do you need it? Right. So if you could give farm workers um, living wages and, um, you know, and permanent status, do you need um, do you need a computational system to monitor them? Right. Or do you find ways if you are? And I think this is the other part. Does it need to be built? And then who's at the table from the very beginning? Right. So, um, you know, I think about, you know, issues of ability, issues of race. That's been the problem. It's not a pipeline problem. Is that these white techno libertarian, often neo fascist, which is very, very fine line between these techno libertarians and neo fascists, which strangely always seem to reproduce and reproduce and reproduce misogyny, sexism, um, and so on, right? And I mean, like someone like Peter Thiel is a neo fascist. Like, let's just be, you know, really, really clear. Um, you know, so if you're really serious about building something that you believe has some benefit to some group of people or to humanity, then you need everyone at the table to begin with, right? You don't need an after the fact, five years down the road, you know, adjustment to an operating system that actually makes it accessible to people with vision or hearing impairments or whatever, right? You need to have those people there from the very beginning. If you're going to create a system that is going to shape the labor practices of farm workers or that is going to um, affect the distribution of, you know, various forms of public service aid or welfare state aid, then um, why aren't those people there from from the very beginning, right? And then, you know, part of it too, you know, and you see this in, you know, tech giants, you have these movements to unionize, you have these movements that are like, you, we're not going to work on this software for this surveillance program, Right. And so I think that those are sites as well for potential collaboration across, you know, academic fields, you know, activist fields, labor, people who are inside institutions, and that work is already happening. Right. But we can always use more. Yeah, can always use more. (laughs) And that's our show. A huge thank you to Shaka McLaughlin and Chris Ramsarup for sharing their thoughts about data and labor. You can find links to their work in the show notes to this episode. 
please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or in your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Twitter at Data Society or at Public Books. If you have thoughts about this podcast, feel free to share them on Twitter and tag us. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. Next time on Becoming Data, I talk to Deb Raji, a researcher who studies artificial intelligence and accountability, and Arthur Guagua, a researcher who works on human rights, AI, and global security. We investigate how AI and automation can lead to harms across different geopolitical contexts and discuss how we might mitigate those harms. So I hope you'll join us for episode three about data, AI, and automation. This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced and edited by Annie Galvin with editorial input from Kelly Dean McKinney and Mona Sloan. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton and our logo was designed by Yuji Liu. Special thanks to Data and Society Director of Research Sarita Amrute and Director of Creative Strategy Sam Hines and to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project. Thank you for listening and I hope to see you next time.